Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. My name is Crawford Gribben, and I'm your host. Today, I'm delighted to welcome our guests, Matthew J. Hart and Daniel J. Hill. And Matt and Daniel are here to talk about their new book, just published by Palgrave Macmillan, called Does God Intend That Sin Occur? Does God Intend That Sin Occur? And as you can probably guess by that title, uh, Daniel and Matt are philosophers with an interest in theology and biblical data, and that's very much the substance of their book, and we're really looking forward to talking to them about it today. Daniel and Matt, thanks for coming on to the show. Congratulations on the book. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us, Crawford. It's great to have you here. So, um, obviously, I, I know you both um, individually um, from our uh, common academic and other interests, but could you tell us before we begin about what your backgrounds are in terms of preparing for this book? Would you like me to go first, Matt, or do you want to go yeah, first? Yeah, you go first, Daniel. Thank you. Well, thanks again for having us on the show. Um, I'm uh, Daniel Hill. I'm a, a teacher at the University of Liverpool in the Department of Philosophy there. I've been teaching there for 22 years now after I did um, my undergraduate degree in classics in Oxford and then a PhD in the Paul Helm at King's College London. Um, one thing that your listeners may have guessed, but uh, we haven't explicitly said, is that uh, Matt and I are both Christians and Christians that take the Bible very seriously, and that informs um, the book. That's one reason why we wanted to write this book and it informs every page of it. And in that connection, your listeners may be interested to know that I'm also the chair of the Tyndale Fellowship Study Group in Philosophy of Religion. The Tyndale Fellowship is an evangelical UK association for uh, scholars of the Bible and theologians and philosophers, and in fact, the only organization in the UK for evangelical philosophers. Um, And I chair that little uh, study group, and we try and meet for a little conference every summer. Very good. And Matt, your own background? Um, Well, I recently finished a PhD in the uh, philosophy of religion. Uh, The PhD was a defense of theological determinism, and my supervisor is none other than Daniel Hill. So uh, in the course of my my studies, uh, uh, this is one of the issues that that came up, I think. Uh, Daniel and I had many kind of uh, fairly lengthy discussions about uh, this issue. It culminated in a paper and... uh, Later, we thought perhaps we can turn the paper into a book, uh, and in fact, we we have. Very good. And we're very so, grateful. We should say for uh, we should say we're very grateful, not just to Paul Gray for publishing it, but for the European Journal of Philosophy and for giving us permission to uh, turn it into a book. I should also add, mm-hmm. by the way, Matt was kind of to mention I was his PhD supervisor, but um, for the record, it must be made clear that I learned more from him in supervising him than he did from me. I'm sure of that. <laughs> okay, so the title of this book then, Does God Intend That Sin Occur? Something, a statement perhaps, or a question perhaps, that would be that different types of people respond to in very different ways. But you're arguing a case here, aren't you? And so much of your case depends upon a distinction that you draw between desires or wants versus intends. Does God desire? That sin occur? Does God want that sin occur, or does God intend that sin occur? What is that distinction all about? 
Right. Yeah, I'll, I'll set up our, our thesis and the sort of terms uh, and uh, adjacent terms necessary to understand it properly, if you want. I mean, so so what's our, what are we saying? Uh, we're saying that uh, we're defending the claim that God intends that sin occur. So in other words, some of the things that God brings about or arranges to occur are sins. Uh, in other words, God brings about sin for the sake of his own good ends. So sins are uh, the intended means that God employs. You know, uh, he arranges for sins to occur so that his purposes might be fulfilled. Okay, so uh, uh, why should one uh, think this is particularly noteworthy? Well, I think one big reason is because I think most Christians, well, we think, most Christians are uncomfortable with the suggestion. So I think most Christians would say that uh, God foreknows that sin will occur, and uh, in the light of that foreknowledge, sort of plans to make the best of it once it occurs. So it's sort of a, something analogous to a, a post hoc uh, clean-up job. But there's something that God never does. God never arranges matters so that a sin will occur because that will involve God's intending that sin occur and that strikes many believers as a bad thing. So I think we think the consensus position um, or majority position perhaps in Christian philosophy and theology is that God has an attitude of pure permission rather than of active will or planning with regards to the occurrence of sin. Does that seem fair, Daniel? Yes, I think you, you've put that very well, uh, uh, Matt. Um, I can give in a few minutes, if you like, that I've got the list in front of me here of the various people arranged on either side of the debate. But you finish what you want to say first. Hmm. Okay. I mean, uh, perhaps um, a way of getting a handle on the provocative nature of our thesis might be through the expression, uh, the saying we have that uh, the end doesn't justify the means, you know, uh, by which we mean something like uh, the good end you have in view doesn't justify employing wickedness as part of your means. Yeah, but uh, we think it does um, in God's case. So we think there are at least occasions where God does decide to bring about wickedness from human beings in order to accomplish his purposes. Now, of course, uh, the wickedness God brings about is in human beings. It's not in God himself. There's no, there's no wickedness in God. Uh, and, of course, we deny that God's intending that sin occur uh, is a sinful thing for God to do. So, Matt, can I just ask for clarification? Are you hmm. suggesting here that God approves of sin? Uh, no, no, uh, certainly not. Uh, God uh, explicitly uh, condemns sin. He, he forbids it. Uh, and uh, so God expresses his disapproval of sin and does not express his approval of it. So this, this is really but, a question, isn't it, about how God arranges providence? Uh, uh, yes, part, in part, yes, yes. Chiefly, yes. What, what does God's providential plans involve? What do, he, what do his intentions involve? Does it involve bringing about sin or, or not? We say yes. Very good. Thanks, Matt. So, Daniel, you mentioned there that you've got a list of theologians or, or religious writers of one kind or another who take con con uh, 
contrasting views uh, on, on on this question. So how, well, if we quickly, think historically, uh, uh, sorry, Matt, go ahead. Could I comment on the desire versus intention distinction? Mm, I think you mentioned that, but I didn't deal with it. Yeah, uh, so the, yes, there is a distinction between uh, intending something uh, and desiring it. So, um, you know, uh, to be perfectly clear, uh, uh, by arguing that God intends that sin occur, it does not follow from that that God desires that sin occur. So, uh, arguably, it's possible to intend something one doesn't desire. Uh, I think the example we give in the book is is going to the dentist. So, a deeply unpleasant thing um, to do, certainly it was back in the day, not something you desire at all, perhaps, but nevertheless, you can still intend to do it, intend to go to the dentist, uh, uh, despite the fact that you... Uh, 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 dislike it so much. So you can, you can view, yeah, you can view God's attitude to sin in the same way. So God abhors sin, dislikes it, but nevertheless um, intends that it occur. So uh, you might think God plans for the occurrence of sin uh, with a shudder, if you like. Thanks, Matt. So th- this is this is a question that's been addressed historically, Daniel, isn't it? And you're not the first people who've thought about this. Equally, not everyone who has thought about it has agreed with your conclusion. So historically, Daniel, how does the land lie? Well, it's very interesting, actually. Um, The Roman Catholic tradition is pretty much uniformly against our thesis here. So the Roman Catholic tradition is pretty much uniformly saying God does not intend that sin occur. And that's not too surprising because they've had some... um, uh, leading thinkers like Thomas Aquinas, who have been really definitive for tradition as a whole and have kind of set the pace and people have been uh, felt it would be wrong to go against them. Now, the Protestant tradition has been less dominated by um, tradition in that sense, but uh, it's interesting to see that the Protestant tradition has been split down the middle on this. So I'll read out to you the, the list of uh, a folk that we've got here that... Um, um, take our view and the folk that don't take our view and, and you can just marvel at the uh, the names on on either side um so um our view is defended we say by augustine luther calvin macovius william perkins bain jonathan edwards tucker the new england theologians um uh, bellamy and so on that took over jonathan edwards thought um uh, pink uh, and john piper a contemporary uh, theologian that your uh, listeners may be familiar with in the United States, Benjamin Warfield as well. Uh, and now on the opposite side of the debate, the people that disagree with us and say, no, God doesn't. And in fact, they almost all say cannot intend that sin occur. We have Thomas Aquinas, as I mentioned, Richard Baxter, Francis Turretin, uh, James Ar- or Jacob Arminius, uh, Quenstedt, a Lutheran, uh, Charnock, a Puritan, and Benson. Um, and you can see that there's a galaxy of theological stars in each camp there. And I have to say that we would not have gone willingly or lightly up against Aquinas, Baxter, Turretin, and so on. Uh, so we were, um, we really put a lot of, of, of work into trying to uh, work through the Bible passages uh, that I hope we'll be able to come on to in a few minutes to try and make sure they really did teach what we thought they were um, teaching because there's no way we'd go up against those um, big names without being pretty sure of our ground, despite the galaxy of towns on the other side as well. 
Thanks, Daniel. One thing that really strikes me about the two lists that you have provided there is that what we might call confessional or denominational bodies are divided between the two. So, for example, Calvinists can be found on either side. The great medieval theologians, Augustine and Aquinas, take opposite views of the question. Puritans can be found arguing both for and against uh, the claim that you make. I suppose that that was striking. Another striking thing that, that came in the book was that some Reformed theologians take neither position. Rabbi John Duncan, um, John Duncan, the Free Church theologian of the 19th century, I think you mentioned in the book that he argues that sin has no cause at all, uh, which is quite, quite, quite a striking uh, claim to make. Um, is, uh, what is, what, what Duncan, these... just, to be, just to be fair to Duncan, sorry, Duncan would be against us on this. So Duncan thinks that God does not intend that sin occur. But as you say, he takes an even more radical view that you know, sin's got to no cause at all. Uh, he thinks he thinks sin is a kind of a perfect nothing um, is how he'd put it, I think. So how does this debate then help us understand how confessional communities are formed? This this is not a doctrine that's been like a pole star for confessional identity, is it? It's not it's not had that shaping, contouring effect. So why is there this liberty in so many confessional traditions on this issue? Did you want to take that matter? Would you like me to have a suggestion? Uh, no, you you go. I can't really think of any. Well, reason my why. suggestion would be would be very simple, which is uh, that. Um, it's a very difficult question, and the Bible's answer um, we need, it needs to be dug out a bit. It's not the, there's no verse in the Bible that says um, you know God does not intend that sin occur, or God intends that sin occur. Neither of those is there in black and white in so many words that you can just pick up, flip open the Bible, and it's there. Okay, it's not like uh, debating whether, uh, you know, I don't know, God is love or something like that, where you can flip open the Bible and read the three words right there in front of you. So you have to do some work um, to try and, and dig out the doctrine from where it underlies uh, the surface. And it's understandable why that should be the case, because after all, the Bible is not written um, to satisfy philosophical curiosity, and it's not intended to be a complete textbook of every single point in uh, in dogmatics or philosophy or theology even, and that's why we have textbooks in theology and philosophy and uh, systematics, because the Bible doesn't have everything neatly laid out um, that in answer to every possible question that anybody might want to ask. What those works involve is digging it out from uh, where it lies underneath the surface and that's what we've tried to do in this book to dig out on this one particular point what we think underlies the surface of a fair number of bible passages so daniel you've teed us up very neatly to to jump into some of those passages now uh, could, could you perhaps talk us through a couple of the passages that you found particularly helpful in thinking about this question does god intend that sin occur I'd be uh, delighted. Shall I go ahead and do this, Matt? Or? Yes, go on. Yeah, thank you. So the, uh, I'd like to start and do it in quite some detail, if that's all right. Um, by, I'd like to start by looking at uh, Exodus, and in particular Exodus 4, and where that is picked up in Exodus 9. Uh, I'll read this out so that your listeners don't have to uh, go running for a copy of the Bible, but if they did have one, actually that would be really helpful. And we discuss... Um, a lot of passages in the in 
the book and I can read out to listeners, if you'd like, the complete list of passages that we discuss, um, but we haven't got time to go into details about all of them at all. So um, Moses here in Exodus 4 is going to Egypt and the Lord says to him, when you, this is verse 21 of chapter 4, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do, but I will harden his, Pharaoh's, heart so that he will not let the people go. So there we have um, a clear statement that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. And what does hardening his uh, heart mean in the scriptures? Well, the, the phrase actually occurs quite a lot. Pharaoh is the most famous example. There's quite a few occasions of hardening heart. And what the Bible means when it talks about hardening heart is that it um, God um, makes the heart such that sin is the inevitable consequence of it. And the sin here is very clearly given. He will not let the people go. God demands via Moses that Pharaoh should let the Israelites go, and Pharaoh refuses. And to refuse something that God tells you to do is um, the, one of the greatest sins that you can possibly imagine. But I'd like just to focus on this um, little word so, or the phrase so that, in verse 21. God says, I'll harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. On the face of it, it looks as though that's God's intention. God intends. So you ask the question, why does God harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, so that, in order that, we say, he, Pharaoh, will not let the people go. So it looks to us, we say, in this passage, that the reason why God hardens Pharaoh's heart, the intention with which God hardens Pharaoh's heart is precisely in order that Pharaoh won't let the people go. And um, when you think about it, it um, not only is that the only reason given the text, but it's kind of hard to think of any other reason why God might harden Pharaoh's heart, what, any other intention he might have. It's uh, Hardening a heart is an incredibly serious act of God's um, it's not something that you know God does just for fun. Um, uh, it's something that he has, as for everything he does, weighty reasons, uh, the intention of which justifies his action. So we say that, it, um, that in the text here is saying that God hardens Pharaoh's heart in order that Pharaoh should not let the people go, which is a sin. Now, that doesn't finish the matter because you might say, well, hang on a minute, why would God want Pharaoh to sin? I get, Daniel, that, uh, Matt, that you're saying this shows that God does intend that sin occur. In this particular instance, God intends that Pharaoh sin. But why? That seems a kind of unlikely thing for a good God to do. Well, actually, in Exodus 9, just five chapters further on, we get, I think, um, an answer to that question. So I'll read a bit starting from verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I'll send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But... I have raised you up for this very purpose, 
that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's verse 16. Okay, what's happening here? Well, in verse 15, God says, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you. That's Pharaoh. Now, why didn't he? He would certainly have been justified in punishing Pharaoh because Pharaoh's committed one of the worst sins you can possibly think of, which is refusing a direct request and order of God's. But the text here says that although God could have punished him by striking him, he didn't do. Why didn't he do? Well, the word but at the start of 16 gives the answer to that. The reason why he didn't do that is because he raised Pharaoh up. And we think raised Pharaoh means kind of planned him from Pharaoh's very conception onwards and his rise to the power, uh, to the place of power in Egypt and so on. He raised Pharaoh up for this very purpose. What's the purpose? That I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, how has God shown his power as related in the book of Exodus? Well, that's easy. He's shown his power through all these uh, plagues that have been uh, sent on the people of Egypt, the river Nile being turned into blood and the plague of gnats and frogs and so on. And we've got the most dreadful punishment still to come, which is the um, slaughter of the firstborn and then the annihilation of the Egyptian army um, at the Red Sea. So God wants to show his power. But of course, those punishments that we described, those plagues that um, he's sending on, as we had in verse 14, I'll send the full force of my plagues against you so that you may know there's no one like me in all the earth. These plagues are punishments. And you can't punish somebody unless they're guilty. Or maybe we could punish people wickedly um, because they're guilty, because they're not, even though they're not guilty or by mistake, even they're not guilty, but God doesn't make mistakes and he's not wicked. So God punishes only the guilty. So that shows that in order to punish Pharaoh, he has to constitute Pharaoh as guilty. So if God wants to show his power, and as verse 16 says, have his name proclaimed in all the earth, the name of God as being the punisher of sin, then logically Pharaoh has to be sinful in order for God to be able to do that. Otherwise, if God were inflicting these plagues on somebody sinless, that would not be proclaiming his, his name because God's name is a good name. That would be proclaiming an evil name plausibly. So it's essential for God to proclaim his name, the name of a good God who punishes sin, but only sin. It's essential for that, that God um, constitute Pharaoh as sinful. And that's what the hardening of heart is. The hardening of the heart is, is, uh, is you know, sh- sh- making Pharaoh such that sin's the inevitable consequence. And we've seen the particular sin, namely refusal to let the people go. So here in um, the Exodus narrative, we have, first of all, God hardening the heart um, with the inevitable consequence that Pharaoh sins, and God intends that inevitable consequence that Pharaoh sins, and the reason why he intended that inevitable consequence of Pharaoh's sinning is that um, what was said in the text, in order that he might show his power and his name. Um, what we insist on is that there's no kind of coincidence here. The only way 
in which God could have shown his power as a punisher of sin and his name as a good and just God. The only way in which he could have done that is if Pharaoh had been sinful. So if he wants, as the text says he does, to show his power and proclaim his name, he has to do it by constituting Pharaoh sinful. And that's what he does by hardening his heart. So this explains, the text explains why, with what intention God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And it's inevitable from that explanation, it falls out logically, we say, that God intends that Pharaoh sin, he intends that Pharaoh sin precisely in order that he can then show his power and name and punishing him. Now, um, shall I stop there and uh, see if you or Matt want to ask anything before I go on to the Romans passage? Well, I was going to suggest you maybe give us a New Testament example as well. Great. I'll have to do that. Matt, uh, did you want to say anything before we go on to the New Testament text? Uh, no, that was a great exposition. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Right, well, let's go on to the New Testament text. So and we've got several New Testament texts in the book, but I think perhaps the, the best for uh, our purposes today might be to look at Romans 9, because it actually picks up on this very a theme that we've just been talking about, the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh. I'll start reading at verse 13 of Romans 9. Just as it's written, quote, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, end quote. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, quote, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion, unquote. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, the human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one that formed it, why did you make me like this? Doesn't the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? So this is a very famous and wonderful uh, uh, passage. And um, among the many things that this passage teaches, we think it, um, if you dig beneath the surface, you'll find that it says, it teaches that God intends that sin occur. And we see that here. So Paul starts, and of course, although it's Paul writing, this is all divinely inspired by saying, uh, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, quoting that from the Old Testament. So uh, Paul is taking as a datum, as a given, um, the fact that God hates some people. And then this promotes, uh, this provokes the response in Paul's imaginary interlocutor, somebody that he imagines is giving objections to him. And the objector says, well, that's unjust for God to hate Esau and love other people like Jacob. And he says, no, it isn't unjust. And then he quotes a second scripture from the Old Testament. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I have compassion on whom I have compassion to justify why God um, loves some people but hates other people. 
and then he explains why God loves and hates and why he has mercy on some and not on others. Answer, it doesn't depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. So in other words, God doesn't love people because of their human desire or effort, and he doesn't hate people because of their human desire or effort. It, the explanation is entirely within God himself. And then Paul quotes a third Old Testament passage to justify this, which is, for Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I'm going to display my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So here's how that um, example of Paul's from the Old Testament relates to what he's, he's saying here. Pharaoh is one of the people on whom God does not have mercy, on whom he does not have compassion. Um, and the reason for that is what's given up here. For this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So just as we said, when we look at the Old Testament, so um, Paul here says the same thing, which is that um, Pharaoh was raised up by God brought up to the position of chief power in Egypt for the purpose that he might be the foil for the display of God's power as a God that punishes sin and the proclamation of his name as somebody that's just in everything he does. And then Paul imagines the objector saying a further objection. Look, why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? So the objector's point is saying, look, hang on, God hardened Pharaoh's heart so he couldn't resist God's will, God's intention that he, Pharaoh, sin. So how can God blame Pharaoh if Pharaoh couldn't resist God's will or intention that he sin? And the objectors put this, well, generally, not just Pharaoh, but for all of us, you know, um, because the objector takes it that this is true, not just for one person in the history of the world, Pharaoh, but it's true for all of us that we are all um, uh, predestined, if you like. The director doesn't use that word, but um, God has determined all our steps and we can't resist his will. So the question is, why does God still blame us? And Paul's answer to that, he says, who are you human beings to talk back to God? Shall what is formed, say to the one that formed it, why did you make me like this? So you can imagine Pharaoh saying, why did you harden me? Why did you make me hard? Why did you make me such that I had to sin? That was a, a flowed from necessity out of my constitution. And his answer um, to that, Paul's answer is, doesn't the potter have the right to make out the same lump of clay, humanity, some pottery for special purposes, that's the people on whom he has mercy, and some for common use, that's the people on whom he does not have mercy. And then Paul finishes off by saying in our little section here, um, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known? So just pause there for a minute. Wrath in the Bible is, in God's case, is wrath at sin. Okay, he, God isn't wrathful at people for doing good. We might, human beings, sometimes get angry at people for no good reason when they've not done anything wrong but God isn't like that God never gets angry at anything but sin so when it says wrath here we've got sin in view so God chooses to show his wrath he wants he intends he intends that he should show his wrath now in order to show his wrath there has to be sin 
because that's what we just said that wrath is. So therefore, God needs to bring it about that sin occur in order to be able to show his wrath and make his power known. So we read the same part of the verse, uh, the next part of the same verse, that God bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. So God has made out of the same lump of clay some objects for common use for his wrath for destruction. And again, what God destroys in the Bible are not good things, but things that are sinful. And that's what, um, um, like Pharaoh, um, whom God destroyed in the parting of the, well, after the parting of the Red Sea, when the Red Sea came back together. And then Paul concludes by saying, what if God did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? So this is the reason that Paul puts forward now to in order to make the riches of his glory known so why did God um, create objects of wrath prepared for destruction things for common use things that we've said were constituted such that sin inevitably follows uh, they inevitably do sin well the answer to that is that he did it in order to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy that is you know, Christians, people on whom God has had mercy. And the riches of glory are known because we can see the difference between the way God behaves to the objects of his mercy from the way he behaves in the objects of his wrath. It kind of makes it more glorious, just like we've had the contrast between Jacob and Esau, which points up the love that uh, God had for Jacob, even though Jacob didn't deserve it. And you don't have to read very far in the Bible to see that Jacob did certainly did not deserve um, God's love. And we just had it there in the text as well. It does not depend on human desire or effort. Um, and by the way, that phrase desire or effort is, uh, covers both the mind, the desire and the effort, the actions of the body. So whatever you think or do, you can't make God love you um, because everything that we think or do is um, tainted with sin and therefore is not, um, you know, up, uh, appealing to God. Okay, back to um, the verse 23. Um, we're told that in order, just as we have the contrast between Jacob and Esau, so we have the contrast between the vessels of mercy on the one hand, like Jacob, and the vessels of wrath on the other hand, like Esau and Pharaoh. And um, God in preparing for destruction, in making it so that they are suitable for destruction, which means in making it so that they are sinful, because as we've said, only sinful things get destroyed by God in the Bible and only uh, things sport by sin, let's say, um, uh, get destroyed by God in the Bible and only sinful things get subject to God's wrath in, in the Bible. It's not just, I would say, human beings because we read that the creation as a whole is under God's curse and that's because of its um, being, uh, you know, tainted, if you like, by um, Adam's sin. Anyway, the point is that uh, um, in order to make this contrast, the riches of his glory known, God has set it up so that there are some objects of wrath, objects, um, vessels of common use that are constituted such that sin will inevitably result. And obviously God intends that. That's not like a kind of freak accident, a surprise. That's part of his purpose because only then can he justly 
destroy them. Only then can he justly be wrathful at them. So we say again that here in this text, it, you have to dig a little bit, as we've just been trying to do, to bring the teaching out. But the teaching out is clear. The teaching here is clear, we say, when you look hard enough, that God intended that the vessels of wrath, not just Pharaoh actually, but all the vessels of wrath, should sin. And the reason why he intended that is because then he would be able to display his power and his name as a just God and make the riches of his glory known to the others, the objects of his mercy, the ones that he's redeemed. So it follows from that, even though it's not the main point at issue in this wonderful passage, but it follows from that, that God intends that sin occur. Matt, did you want to add anything um, to that? Or? No, that was a very uh, full and complete explanation. Thanks. Matt, Matt, Matt could I just um, follow on then by asking the question, um, earlier on in the conversation, you described the argument of the book as provocative. Mm -hmm. how, how do you, as authors, hope the book will be received? Um, uh, well, uh, we think, uh, I think our chief hope is that people will find it persuasive. Uh, they'll read the volume, uh, pay close attention to the texts, listen to our uh, derivation of our the thesis uh, from the scriptural text, and they'll say, yep, good job, Matt and Daniel, you've persuaded me. And uh, uh, But if that's a bit too optimistic, um, then I suppose uh, I think part of Daniel and I's hope is that it at least gives people pause uh, when they uh, perhaps uh, cavalierly uh, declare that God could not uh, will sin or intend sin. That's uh, that's become quite common, I think, amongst uh, Christian philosophers. So if if that uh, if that sort of thing, uh, if we see a diminishing in that sort of thing, then I think that that Daniel, I'd be very pleased with that. Very good, and it's an open access book. Palgrave have made it open access, which means it's free to download. So any listener who's interested in following your arguments. In more detail, can go to the Palgrave Macmillan website, search for the title, Does God Intend That Sin Occur? Uh, and download, I suppose, a PDF version of this for free. Um, How has it been working in an open access format? Has that been something you've enjoyed? I think one thing we need to say right away is we need to say a great big thank you to the University of Liverpool because they paid for it to be open access. It's not a, a free service of Paul Griffin Macmillan's, and they kindly paid the fee up front. So they're paying so that your listeners don't have to and they can read it and not just read it, but they can um, you know, pass it on to their friends and, uh, and print off as many copies as they like and quote it. Um, unlimitedly in their books and all that that, that kind of thing. So um, uh, they can do all that um, without any uh, worries. Um, um, but uh, f for me, uh, the writing uh, process was, was really pretty similar to writing uh, any other book. We didn't want to try and compromise on scholarly rigor, uh, even though we wanted to reach as many people as possible. Uh, so we tried very hard to... Um, cover all our bases, to try and deal with alternative interpretations to the um, one I've just put forward to those Bible passages and things like that. Matt, did you want to add anything? No, no. 
Well, it's been great talking to you both today about this book, Does God Intend That Sin Occur, published by Palgrave Macmillan, um, and as I said, freely downloadable from, from their website. Um, are, there any, are there any other projects that we can look forward to hearing about coming from your pens in the near future? Um, I have many plans uh, for Daniel and I, uh, future work. Daniel doesn't know about it, but uh, yeah, I have, have lots of these plans. I'm very much looking forward to those plans. I do have a, a book um, coming out, uh, due to come out in April, but it's not from my pen. This is from the pen, and literally the pen in many respects, of Professor Paul Helm, who supervised my PhD um, 25 years or so ago um, in uh, King's College, London. His collected papers have been edited by me and a friend of mine, Oliver Crisp, who's based at um, University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And we've uh, co-edited um, 40 of his papers in a big volume due to come out from uh, Routledge. And so looking forward to, uh, to that. But uh, uh, that's all uh, Paul's work. I've just uh, done uh, bibliographies and abstracts for the, the papers. So um, he gets all the credit for that. Well, we look forward to seeing that in due course. Daniel and Matt, it's been great having you on the show today. It's been great to talk about your book, Does God Intend That Sin Occur? Available from Palgrave Macmillan. Thanks to you both for your time and hopefully see you soon. Thank Thank you for having us. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I hope you found that interesting. If you do want to follow up on Daniel and Matt's arguments, you can go to the Palgrave Macmillan website, type in the title of the, the book, Does God Intend That Sin Occur? Download the PDF and you can read it in much more detail. But thank you for tuning in and look forward to seeing you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.